Thanks, Christine. Take it. All right. Well, we have uh, another guest with us today, and uh, his name is Alistair. And Alistair used to be uh, part of our community a long time ago, and, and this is still home to him. And uh, he grew up here, uh, was saved through the ministry of this church. Uh, I should say by Jesus, right? Jesus did that. And has just has a call in his life to teach and to preach. He loves the word. Um, and we've seen him grow in that. He and his wife are currently living in Sacramento. And they are serving um, there in their ministry, uh, in youth ministry there. And she has finished up nursing school. And, uh, and he's just working and supporting his wife during that time. So it's, uh, it's neat to see their faithfulness. Um, Alistair's up here this weekend. And it kind of was a... Not a coincidence, I think it was a God thing. God laid him on my heart to, uh, to ask him to preach one of these messages because I just felt, man, Alistair could share. He has, he has a heart to share that. Uh, but it, what was neat about that, too, is his mom is getting baptized today at the lake. So not only is he going to be able to preach here, he's here for that baptism time and gets to be a part of that, uh, that relationship with his mom still. So a uh, great opportunity, um, and I'm excited to hear from him today. Would you guys welcome Alistair Curley? Hey everyone, how's it going? So, today is an awesome day, as Brandon was saying. Um, we're going to be in the, end, the very end of Matthew chapter 4, going into Matthew chapter 5 today. Uh, so if you could turn there, that would be great. I really like what Brandon's doing now with this whole turn to the Bible yourself thing. Um, I'm actually not going to have any slides up today besides my main points. Um, so get the Bible out, open it up to the very end of Matthew chapter 4. Um, and so we're going through a series called Unavoidable Believing the Gospel, and it's a nine-week series, and we're in week six now, and uh, this week is the message, the message of the Savior. And so before I get started, let's pray, and then we can dive into what God has to say. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for all the amazing things you can do. I thank you that we can come together and to worship you and to sing praises to you. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds can be open to what you have to say today. God, that you can just use me to speak your word truthfully and humbly, and that um, in the end, we can just lean on you, we can cling to you, because you're a good, good father. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so the main points are already up today. I'm just going to leave those up there. Um, and like I said, we're in week six, and today we're focusing on the message, what the Savior, what Jesus has to say. And so just to make sure everyone is up to speed, a quick recap of what we've covered so far in the story of the Bible. We started with creation. In the beginning, God. He created us. He created humanity, and he created us uniquely in his own image and to be in relationship with him. In the garden, everything is good. And then we see that this relationship, this trust and belief that Adam and Eve had in God was shattered when they chose to sin, when they chose to disobey God and took, take of this fruit and eat it. Because they wanted to be God. They saw this fruit was good for wisdom. It was pleasing to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And so they doubted God and they distrusted him and they took of that fruit and they ate it. And so they sinned. And when sin entered the world, death entered the world. And so they were removed from God's presence. They were removed from the garden. And we see this time of people wandering and searching for something to fill this God-shaped hole we have in our hearts. Because we, we need this fulfillment and this satisfaction that only God can satisfy. But the 
amazing and crazy thing is that from the beginning, God had a plan. God had a promise. And we see it literally right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve mess up. He has this promise where he says, Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head and he will strike his heel. God had a promise. And this promise led to prophecies of this, this Messiah, this anointed one by God, this king, this savior to come and bring restoration. And so we see this savior, Jesus is born, God incarnate, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. And that's where we're at today. We're here in the story. Our relationship with God is broken, but Jesus, the promise in the flesh as our savior, has a message, a sermon to deliver. And so before we get into this, before we dig through this, this Sermon on the Mount, and granted the Sermon on the Mount is a huge, crazy chunk of scripture, and I'm just doing a brief covering of just a little bit of it today. Um, but as we're getting into it, I want to give us some context, some background to get us into the mindset of what the Jewish people, what the Israelite people were thinking at the time when Jesus is coming on the scene. See, the Jews idea of a Messiah, was hoping for this powerful military leader and king to come and lead them out of this oppression they were under from all these different foreign rulers they've been under for centuries. The Jews had been, they hadn't been free in a long time, and they were sick and tired of it. They wanted this king, they wanted God's anointed to come and free them from that and to have this great earthly kingdom established and to just rule and reign and have this awesome nation. So they hear and see this man, Jesus, who's just recently come on the scene, and he's performing miracles, and he's teaching with this authority and power. He's not quoting, like, old rabbis and stuff like that. He, his word is his word, and what he has to say, it's strong. It's powerful. And they're, they're seeing this guy, and they're thinking, maybe, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the Christ, the anointed one. Maybe he's going to bring us out of this oppression under Roman rule. And so by the end of Matthew chapter 4, I didn't turn there yet, in verses 24 and 25, we see, no, chapter 4, sorry. This is difficult. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 24, it says, news about him spread all over Syria. News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who are ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus has this massive crowd of people following him from literally all over the place. North, south, east, and west, these people are flocking to Jesus because they're seeing that he is doing some amazing stuff. And so we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Jesus has his disciples. He's been teaching and preaching in the synagogues and healing the sick, and these huge crowds are following him, and they see him heading up a hillside. And when this teacher, this preacher, is heading up a hillside, usually that means he's got something to say. And so these people are like, oh, yeah, here we go. He's going to say something awesome. And so they're heading up the hill. He's going to talk to us. And this is where I make my first point. The message is not what they expected it to be. The message 
is not what they expected it to be. See, Jesus sits down and he begins to speak, and in verse 3 he says, Blessed are. Blessed are. Now, what are these people thinking of? How is he going to finish this sentence? Blessed are those who, who follow law. The Pharisees. Oh, yeah, those, those dudes. They're blessed. Whew, they've got it together. Those who obey the Sabbath. Those who give 10% of all their fr- first fruits. These, these people devoted to God's law, right? Or maybe in our time, in our modern day, the people who are blessed are those who are, those who are well off. Those who get to relax and kick back and, you know, they're retiring early and all that stuff. Those, those are the blessed people. That's who Jesus is going to talk about. But no. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What? What does he mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is setting up this revolutionary idea that blows minds to this day of it's not about here and now, guys. It's about eternity. Before the cross, before the resurrection, people didn't understand the full extent of God's plan. Jesus came teaching and preaching, but they weren't getting it. His kingdom is not temporary and of this world. He's not here to get them out of this oppression of Roman rule and set up this nice little kingdom and hanging out like, ooh, yeah, this is fun. No, God has a bigger plan. His salvation wasn't freeing them from captivity and setting up this earthly kingdom. His salvation was to free us from our hopeless pursuit of righteousness and make us children of God. His message is not what they expected. This leads to my next point, point number two. The humble and broken are the children of God. The humble and broken are the children of God. Because it's only the humble and broken, they know they have nothing to offer God. I'm going to read through the first part of the Beatitudes here. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, what's cool about the Beatitudes here in this, this first part is it's portraying this progress of our personal experience with our sin and our personal experience of our lack of righteousness in light of God's commands and the grace and mercy and forgiveness that he shows in spite of that. Let's read through it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who are mourning over their sin, mourning over their lack of self-righteousness, because they have nothing. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who don't have anything. They have nothing. They're just looking for something to get from God. They're ready. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm empty of myself. I need something to fill me up. I'm hungering. I'm thirsting. For they will be filled. And this goes in contrast to every other religion out there, right? Every other religion says it's dependent upon you to get to God or some enlightened state. 
It's all on you, all on your shoulders. What Jesus is saying here is that we cannot. We can't. They didn't get it back then, and we still don't get it now. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness is not good enough. And he continues this idea of self-righteousness through the rest of chapter 5. I'm going to hit a bunch of different segments, six of them, where Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Starting in verse 21, he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Going down to verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jump to verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love, oh, I already did that, whoa. Woo. So Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. See, we, what we think is we think the big things count, right? The big bad things count. Murder, sleeping around, theft, all these things. Those are what count. Those are what make us bad people, right? Jesus is taking the law, and he's taking it to the core of what it's saying. He's saying the law goes deeper than just these external actions that we have. He's saying it all starts with our hearts, with our inner selves. And just in case we still think we could somehow attain some little bit of self-righteousness good enough to get us salvation, good enough to get us into the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this one chapter, in that one verse, verse 48, Jesus shatters our hope of self-righteousness to drive us to his righteousness. Jesus shatters our hope of self-righteousness to drive us to his righteousness. Because only the broken and humble are children of God. And this takes me to point three. The message says we must cling to Christ's righteousness. We must cling to Christ's righteousness. What Jesus says in chapter 5 of Matthew and what, he's, and what the law in general says is all intended not to tell us how to be perfect because we can't. It's intended to point out our sin, to make us aware of who we truly are. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 3 here, verse 19. Romans chapter 3. Verse 19. 
He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now our righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference among any of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. There's no excuse for us. There's no way to not be exposed by the law, for it reveals our hearts to be what they truly are, wicked and deceitful above all things. No one will be declared righteous. But God, he had a promise. He has a plan. A righteousness from God that justifies us freely by his grace, by the something that we never deserved, we could never earn. In view of the law, we don't deserve everything. But God, he gives us everything. His promise came through, and to more than just the audience that he's talking to, to more than just the Israelites, God's people through a bunch of lineage passed down generation after generation. His promise comes to everyone. It comes to us. We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. But God is so faithful that his, his promise goes to everyone. The righteousness of God is through Christ because he is the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is our righteousness. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus, not only did he teach and model righteousness, we see that coming into Matthew chapter 5. He's teaching and preaching in the synagogues. He's healing all these sick people. Not only did he teach and model righteousness, he came as divine righteousness. He is righteousness. He is God. What he said and did reflected who he is, a perfect and holy God who is our righteousness. And this clinging to Christ as our source of righteousness leads us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have emptied ourselves. We're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing left in us. We know we are nothing apart from God. And so we want to be filled with him. And this leads to our fourth point, that the message says his righteousness and perfection fills us up. I'm heading back to the Beatitudes in the second part. Matthew 5, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when you people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, verse 6 ends with this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then starting in verse 7, we start seeing this, this sort of turning, where through our filling of righteousness through Christ, we're merciful. We're pure in heart. We're peacemakers. We're being persecuted because of Christ. This continuing process of salvation leads us to being empty and desired to be filled with only the good stuff, only with the righteousness of God. And it leads to this fruitful life. And John gives us a great illustration of this in John 15. So if we could turn there, John 15, verse 1 through verse 6. Jesus is speaking here and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean by, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, apart from Christ, we're nothing. We're spiritually empty. We're dead in sin. We're that dead branch that's thrown off and cast into the fire. Without Christ, we are nothing. But with him, with him, we're brought to life. We're thriving and producing fruit. And, and we're not producing our own fruit either because our fruit's gross. Our fruit's nasty and dead and moldy and ugh. No, we have, we have Christ's fruit. We're producing his fruit. We're producing the fruit of the Spirit. We have no good fruit to offer apart from him because he is the true vine. He is the vine, and we produce his fruit. And so we desire to live according to what Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Going back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, he was setting up what the law truly was. He was describing what the law ultimately boils down to. It's our heart. And he was doing it, he was preaching it to not only show us that we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves, but he was also giving guidelines as to how, as followers of Christ, being filled up in his righteousness, how we can pursue righteousness. Because as the Beatitudes show, as we're emptying ourselves, we're getting hungry and thirsty for something good, for good righteousness. And so... The Sermon on the Mount is sort of two things, and it's cool. It shows us that we're not good, but also through Christ, we can do amazing and awesome things. And so this message is not what we would have ever expected. It explains that only the broken are God's children, because only he 
can be our righteousness. And through him, we have an abundant and fruitful life. Now I want to get this. Ultimately, the message is him. Ultimately, the message is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We will never be righteous before God. As Paul said, only through faith in Jesus can we be seen as righteous before God. So as we head into a time to respond to this message, maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been trying and trying and trying, trying to bear good fruit, but you're realizing it's fruitless. Maybe you've relied on yourself all along and you're ready to trust in his righteousness. You've seen that you're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. So I encourage you, pray to God. Pray with the person next to you or come up and pray with me. Whatever it is, put your faith in him because apart from him, it's hopeless. But with him, we've got the kingdom of God. There couldn't be anything better. Or maybe it's been a while since you've dwelled on how unworthy we are. Because as Paul said, as Jesus says, we're not perfect, we're not righteous. So maybe we could take some time to dwell on how amazing God's grace truly is. How astounding his message is. Wherever you're at, I encourage to pray if you need to. Pray with the person next to you. I'll be up here to pray with if you want to come pray with me. Or maybe you just want to sing praises to the one true almighty God who loves us no matter what. But let us not forget the graceful gift God has offered to us all through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. God, you are a good, good father. You have loved us in spite of all of the wrongs, in spite of our wicked heart. You never gave up on us. You pursued us from the beginning. Your love is greater than we could ever imagine. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that we can put our faith in you, that we can trust in you, that you can be our rock and our foundation in this crazy, weird world. And that through you, through faith in you, we were credited with your righteousness. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense to me sometimes. But God, it's amazing. And I thank you for that. So God, I just pray that as we continue today, as we go on about our lives, that we can be living in your righteousness, living in your grace, and that through that you can be producing amazing fruit. In your name we pray, amen.